much does sex cost in your marriage? I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where I blog all the time, mostly about sex and marriage. And today on our To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, I would like to talk about the economics of sex. Now, don't worry, I'm not talking about prostitution or about anything gross like that, okay? I just want to talk about some economic theories that can help us figure out how much sex we're actually going to have. I personally find this stuff super fun. I'm a major economics nerd. And so I hope that you will take this little romp with me and enjoy it too as we as we discuss what demand and supply curves have to do with how much you're going to be having sex. Okay, so bear with me here. I have actually taken Economics 101 three times in my life. I've taken some higher level economics courses as well, but I had to take Economics 101 three times. So frustrating. I took it in grade 12 in high school uh, and learned it, loved it, had an amazing teacher, one of my three best teachers I've ever had. Thank you, Mrs. Richardson. And then when I was in university, I took it in first year university, except that it was basically the same course that I had already learned, but you didn't get to get exempted back then. I think you would probably do that now. I think you universities are a lot better at exempting people from first year courses if they took an equivalent course in high school. But back then they didn't do that. So I took the whole thing all over again. And then when I did my master's in public administration, they made us take this basic economics course and I took it again. And so I have done economics 101 three times. Luckily, I really, really enjoy economics. So much so that when my girls were homeschooled and they were doing some university courses online and I helped them with economics, I think I made them hate it because I was so excited about it. You know how sometimes you're too excited about something and then people hate it? I hope I'm not doing that to you guys all listening to this podcast today, but I figure if we're throwing sex in, it'll make it a little bit more palatable. So one of the basic things that Economics 101 talks about is demand and supply. And what they mean is that people are going to determine how much of a product that they want to buy based on its price. You know, like when it gets more expensive, people are going to buy less of it. That's why when something goes on sale, everybody stocks up and buys more. You tend to buy more when the price is lower. But then how much is actually supplied depends on all kinds of things as well. Like people who make the product will supply it in greater um, amounts if the price is higher, like if people are willing to pay more. And if we're thinking about sex in that way, we can think, you know, if someone is willing to woo me a lot, if someone is willing to talk to me a lot beforehand, if they're going to pay more to get sex in those relationship terms, then you'll supply more. And that actually is true. There's a couple of other economics truths about sex to think about. Like, for instance, are the demand curve, so how much sex people want, is very related to two things, our libido and how we feel about the relationship. So when you have a healthy libido, you're going to want sex more. And when you feel good about the relationship, you're going to want sex more. In economics terms, that would be called shifting the demand curve, but you really don't need to know that part of it, okay? (laughs) But basically, you know, these libido issues and relationship issues are so key and they determine how much people are going to want sex. I don't want to talk about that today either, though. Well, we're not going to talk about the demand curve and about relationship and libido issues, and we're not going to talk about how to increase the supply of sex by wooing people more and just being nicer to them, all of that. Instead, there's another element that I want to talk about, and that's that the inputs of something 
will actually determine how much is supplied because the inputs can change the price. Let me talk about something that's not sex to explain this to you. Let's say that I'm manufacturing ice cream, okay? And I decide that, you know, if the price of ice cream is $5 a carton, this is how much I'm willing to make. What happens though, if all of a sudden the price of milk goes up? So when I make my ice cream and I have to buy milk, actually, I don't think most ice cream has milk. I think it has something like solidified milk products or something gross. But anyway, let's just say (laughs) that the price of those go up. Well, now all of a sudden ice cream is a lot more expensive for me to make. And so I'm not going to supply as much. And what I want to suggest to you today is that sex in marriage has a lot of inputs, a lot of ingredients, a lot of things that go into it. And when those things in and of themselves get more expensive, you're going to end up with less sex. Okay. So yes, libido issues are really important. And yes, relationship issues are really important. In fact, they're probably the most important thing about how much sex people have in marriage. But I talk about that all the time. (laughs) This month, when we're talking about on the blog on our Wednesday series about when life gets in the way and just how to handle basic life stuff so that your marriage gets better. I want to look at some of these basic things that we often ignore that can make a huge difference on how much sex we have in our marriage and how good that sex is. So let's look at the ingredients of sex. First of all, you have to have energy. You have to not be exhausted. You have to be able to think, yes, I don't need to go to sleep right now, but I can enjoy just being with my spouse. Uh, you have to be in the same place at the same time. It's very difficult to have sex if someone is not in the room with you, okay? It just doesn't work logistically. Uh, so, you know, you need to be in bed at the same time. You need to have a time when there aren't kids around. You need, you need all of that. You need to have a place to make love. So your bedroom has to be a place where sex can easily happen. That's more difficult if there's children in the room or if the bedroom is a mess or if walking into your bedroom makes you feel stressed. Uh, You have to feel physically well. You have to not be in a lot of pain. You have to not have your back hurt all the time. You have to not be nauseous. You have to not... Uh, just be farting, (laughs) anything like that, not have digestive issues. You know, so watching what we eat, taking good care of our bodies, that all goes into sex too. You have to not have too much on your mind. You have to be able to concentrate because as I say over and over again, for women, our sex drives are almost entirely in our brains. If our brains are not engaged, it's very difficult for our bodies to follow and to get aroused. You could be enjoying kissing. You could be enjoying warming up. He could be touching you and it could be feeling good. And you could be thinking, this is amazing. This is great. And then all of a sudden it occurs to you, is there milk in the fridge? Oh man, I think we're out of milk. That means there's no cereal for the kids for breakfast. Shoot, what are we going to have for breakfast instead? Oh man, I got to go get milk tomorrow. When am I going to squeeze in the grocery shopping? And if I'm going grocery shopping, what else should I get? And you start doing this whole grocery list in your head and your husband's there going like, what happened? I mean, we were having fun. Where did you go? And so when our brains aren't engaged, when we're highly distractible, when we have a ton of things on our mind that can easily get our brains out of what is happening, then sex is not going to be as enjoyable. It's not going to happen as often. It's going to be much harder for us to relax. And that's also true for men. You know, both of us have to not be stressed. For men, stress is one of our 
their biggest libido killers. When they are too stressed, sex is just more difficult. So all of these things, energy, being in the same room, being in a comfortable room, feeling well, uh, having your mind clear, not being stressed, and there's so many more, but all of them, just consider them inputs or ingredients to a good sex life. And when it becomes harder to get one of those things, when the price goes up, then less sex will be supplied even if demand remains the same. So even if you have the same libido, even if your relationship is still good, if the price of one of those things goes up, you're going to have less sex. Just like for ice cream, if the price of milk goes up, they're not going to be able to produce as much at that price. Okay, because it just isn't going to happen. And so the price will go up overall and that means you'll have less sex. Less ice cream, less sex, both. Hey, you know, ice cream and sex go together too. But anyway, we're not going to go into that right now. Okay, <laughs> so let's just take one of those inputs. Let, let's take the bedroom, for instance. If you walk into your bedroom at night and there's clutter everywhere and there's laundry on the floor, what's the first thing you think? You think, oh man, I got to clean this up. And so immediately your mood goes down right? If in order to even get into bed, you have to take the laundry off of the bed and put it on the floor and you think to yourself, okay, there's another night where the laundry's not getting folded. I wonder how many more loads are going to get added to this pile before I get around to it. Now you're adding so much guilt again and you're just feeling lousy. If your bed is just super uncomfortable and you lie down and you just don't feel good, that's not going to help. Or if you're both in bed and then children climb in with you, uh, or if they're there to begin with, that's going to make sex a lot more difficult. If you don't have a lock on your door and you're nervous that a child is going to walk in at any moment, that's going to make sex more difficult. Or if you're worried that kids are going to hear you, uh, any of that makes sex a lot more difficult. So that's an input in sex. You need a good place to have sex. And if the place isn't there, then sex is going to get more difficult. This is what I always say about co-sleeping, by the way, because, you know, I've, I've come down pretty hard on co-sleeping. I understand when we're talking about babies and when you just want them to be at hand so that you can breastfeed, like when you're talking about under six months of age, I also, since my husband is a pediatrician, I always have to say that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Canadian Pediatric Society both recommend that the baby stay in a bassinet in the room with you until six months of age, but not in bed with you. But after that point, when a baby can be sleeping through the night, they don't need to be in bed with you. And when you sleep with toddlers, when you sleep with older children, that can really diminish your marriage. And I know families that are completely dedicated to co-sleeping and say that it says that it helps them and it helps the children with attachment and all of that. I would question some of that research, but I understand that they feel very deeply about this. What they'll say to me is, it's not that you can't have sex, Sheila. You just need to get more imaginative and more deliberate and more intentional. I mean, you can have sex in different rooms of the house. It doesn't have to be the bedroom. Or they'll tell me, you just have to be quiet. But think about those statements. You just have to get more intentional. You have to do it in places other than the bedroom. You have to be quiet. What we're talking about in all of those cases is increasing the price of an input into sex. Okay, so you're increasing the cost of that input. Because as soon as you have to get more intentional, then that is costing more. 
See, a lot of people, when they have sex in marriage, they don't even necessarily plan to have sex. They go to bed. They might be thinking about it, but they haven't decided yet. They climb into bed together. They're talking together. And then maybe things just happen. But if you had had to be intentional beforehand, and if you had had to say to each other, hey, we should have sex tonight. Let's go use the living room couch. It may not have happened. And that's what I'm talking about. When something becomes harder, it just doesn't happen as often. And so I want you to think about that when it comes to sex in your marriage. Like what are the ingredients in sex in our marriage? Having energy, having a good place to make love, having time to make love, being in the same place, feeling well, all of those things. And then say, are there some of those that I can actually impact? Can I take some of those issues and change them so that the price goes back down? (laughs) That's actually our challenge for this week on the blog. And I will put a link in the description um, to this podcast, to my big uh, blog post where I do talk about all elements of this podcast. I have an in-depth post with super nerdy graphs on shifting the supply curve (laughs) for sex, which you can look at. But also our weekly challenge this week is to take a look at all the different inputs of sex. And I've mentioned 10 of them in a post, which I will link to, and then say, okay, which one or two do I think is most affecting me, but that I can also influence and have your husband or your wife, if you're a man listening to this, have them look at that as well and name one or two things. And then together, why don't you try to tackle them? Because yes, sex is usually about libido or relationship issues, but it's not all about that. And sometimes these little things can actually impact our sex life far more than we understand. 31 Days to Great Sex. It's 31 really fun challenges in 31 days. Just read two to four pages a day together and do what it says. It's easy peasy. And don't worry, you don't have to have sex for 31 days straight. Instead, you'll learn to talk more openly about issues, flirt more, deal with baggage, figure out what feels good, try new things, spice things up, and so much more. It's the best 31 days you will ever have in your marriage. Why not start today? On the podcast, we like to take some comments that have come in and just discuss them in general. And I brought Rebecca on to comment on this one with me. So last week, we ran an article on uh, 10 ways to help prevent uh, sexual assault. Yeah, like what to teach your daughters in order to keep them more safe from sexual assault or in order to help them protect themselves or something like that. Yeah, I totally forget what we said. I I know that I went around with the wording because I was I didn't want to imply that first of all you can ever eliminate the risk because you can't. Like there's always a risk, especially since most sexual assault is committed by someone that you know. It's not committed by strangers. Um, but then the other thing is I didn't want people to feel blamed if they were sexually assaulted. Like oh well, I should have just done these things. So you know that's always a bit of a tension when you're writing something like this. But, you know, I do think it's important to teach basic life skills. Like, I I told you this stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the earliest things, I mean, not even just sexual assault, but just assault in general, or just the fact that people can be bad, and you have to protect yourself from bad people. Like, when we were two years old and living in Toronto, you taught me how to scream, you're not my mommy. Yeah, that's right, because (laughs) because you're not supposed to just scream, because people can think it's a toddler having a... uh, 
just a temper tantrum. A temper tantrum, which I had a lot of. Yes, so you had to scream, you're not my mommy. And then we had the horrible case, like just awful, of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Um, before you were born, when I was in university, uh, two uh, married couple who kidnapped uh, Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey um, and and murdered them. And what was so terrible about that is that the way that they enticed them into the car was Carla did it. Yeah, it wasn't the scary man in the car. It was the pretty woman. Yeah, this really who looked totally fine. This really pretty and safe. And so I always taught you guys when you were young that if anybody talks to you from a car, you need to stand far enough back that they can't touch you, or yeah. that if a car is ever following you and you get creeped out about it, do you remember what I told you to do? You turn around and walk the other direction, or else you walk into the into the nearest public building and tell someone. Right, but yeah, you turn around yeah. and you walk towards the car because it requires the car to do a U turn to keep following you. And so, yeah, like these are just things that I taught you guys even when you were really little, and um, and and, and I think that we do need to know just basic, basic awareness you know when we're out in public just keep aware of what's going on around you anyway but as always happens whenever I write a post like this I get people um, texting me or tweeting me or whatever who say instead of teaching girls how to protect themselves we need to teach boys not to rape which you also said in your article. Yeah, I did open the article, by the way, with a hilarious Twitter thread, um, which I actually want to read. I thought this thread was just awesome. It's by a woman called X Crazy Ray Ray or whatever, and she did this thread back in June. And it says, how to avoid sexual assault. A thread. Beware of drugs. Do not put drugs in drinks that are not yours. Watch what you are wearing. If you feel you may sexually assault somebody, it is best to wear a shirt that says rapist so that others can steer clear. (laughs) When walking at night, do not sexually assault those around you. (laughs) When somebody is helping you with car troubles or you are helping somebody else, do not sexually assault them. (laughs) You know, and she goes on like that, just sort of dispelling the... um, you know, the, the often the common advice that we give to be careful and she's putting it back on the person who does the assaulting. And I completely agree with the, the, the emotion and the aim behind that. Absolutely. But there is a problem with it, which is that when we say that the solution to sexual assault is to teach men to stop raping, it doesn't help you in the here and now. Even if we were to educate all of our teen boys on sexual assault it's not going to help the young women who are at campus right now with people who are no longer teen boys. But also, it, 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 it says that it's actually possible to teach people not to be evil. And obviously, like, telling your kids from a young age to respect people and to just be upstanding citizens and to not be selfish and manipulative and just focus mainly on just getting whatever they want no matter what the cost like instilling those kinds of values in your kids is so important but there are some people who are just going to do bad things yep and you can't stop all people from doing bad things and so the problem is if we're not preparing people to be if we're not preparing people with even basic skills to avoid the people who are doing the bad things We're just giving the people who are going to do bad things a lot more opportunity. It's like you teaching me when I was two years old to scream, you're not my mommy. Ideally, you don't have people kidnapping (laughs) two-year-olds. But the reality is we lived in a world and we lived in downtown Toronto 
Mm-hmm. It was very busy, and it's very easy for a child to just get snatched in a crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, and we live in that kind of world. And so you need to teach the two-year-old to scream, you're not my mommy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the answer is obviously, hopefully, just don't kidnap people. But what happens if it does happen? Yeah. And I would, I would so much rather they be prepared. I, I understand that it is unfair to put the, um, all of the effort in preventing sexual assault on women. I totally I get that. I totally do. But at the same time, as a woman, I would so much rather be prepared. And it's empowering to know that as a woman, you can do things that at least you know that you're making the best choice possible. Yeah. It's not ever, ever, ever going to eliminate the risk. And it is not your fault if you are assaulted. But there are things that we can do just to minimize the risk, um, even, if, yeah. even if it can't be zero. Yes, I completely believe that men should be taught to not assault. Absolutely. But, you know, it's my life and it was your lives. And I, I don't want to not protect women in order to make a political point. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to for me. Yeah, we need to have both prevention awareness and also kind of treating the issue at the source. Yeah, and so and that's why in, in the whole story, our puberty course, uh, where dads can sit down with sons and talk about puberty and moms can sit down with daughters, it's great. You, we talk a lot about respecting women. Yeah, and, and in the boys' version, um, yeah, talk about consent. We're going to add some more to that uh, soon, too. So these are important conversations to have, certainly with your boys. But I still think you got to have them with your girls, too. So take a look at that article. I will leave the link in the description for this podcast. When people sign up for my email list, I ask them to send me one thing that they're struggling with the most. And a woman wrote in and said this, the one thing that I struggle with most is maintaining an attitude of joy and fun in the middle of all the mundane, diapers, meals, cleaning and laundry day, etc." Yep. I, I totally get that. Sometimes life just seems like it's one big to-do list. And I don't know what she's talking about. I personally <laughs> doing dishes is the highlight of my week. <laughs> Um, you know, so, so how do we maintain an attitude of joy and fun? A big thing that helped for me and Connor when we're not in the middle of diapers yet. Um, You're about to be. Quite close to be. Quite close in, to it. Quite close to be swimming in diapers. <laughs> uh, but um, for us, a lot of the problem was we were both students when we got married. And so we didn't have very much time uh, to spare. And then when we did, we kind of just felt like we were always spending it, you know, doing dishes or cleaning the apartment and stuff like that. And and a big thing that really helped with us was just understanding the sacred of the mundane, which is a mm-hmm. very important mindset shift, I think. So mm-hmm. there's there's this this concept in some Christian circles, mostly more um, Anglican is where you hear more about this versus evangelical. Mm-hmm. Um, But this idea of the sacred mundane, where even the little things you do, like doing dishes or folding that laundry or, you know, wiping your kid's butt, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. Like there's a sacredness to that because it's pouring out of yourself Mm -hmm. for someone else, whether it's your family or your child or something like that. And I know that doesn't sound like a very solution-y kind of thing, (laughs) but it, it does help to get into the mindset that it's not fun, but this has meaning. Mm hmm. And I know that helped me a lot, at least, because I'm not someone who's naturally a homemaker. I'm not someone who's naturally finds joy in 
tidying and there are apparently people out there who do right um but Marie, I'm just Marie not. Kondo. I do find joy in folding my clothes now. I love Marie Kondo's method of folding your clothes in a drawer. <laughs> I have to admit that gives me joy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that a lot of these things, when it, they, they become very difficult and very, very much like they're trying to drown you and they become very overwhelming as well. And so the one thing I had, like one of the things I had to do was change my mindset about a lot of it. But the other thing I had to do was just honestly find ways to make it easier. Mm-hmm. Because it's, if it's not as overwhelming, you don't quite feel like you're going to drown. Yeah. And so getting those systems, uh, getting systems for when we do dishes, getting systems for all of that helps. Here's another interesting um, stat that I read this week that relates to what she's saying. Uh, this is from uh, an article on mother.ly, which I will leave in the podcast description, on the increasing work that dads are doing. So listen to this. Back in 1982, a whopping 43% of fathers admitted that they had never changed a diaper. Wow. Holy cow. I know. But today that number is down to 3%, which is great because research indicates that when dads dress, diaper, and bathe their babies, the father-child relationship grows stronger as the child grows. And what the article goes on to say is that millennial dads are way more involved than any other generation of dad in history and, and that that is really seriously good for kids, but it's also very good for marriages. So the more dads do, the better the marriage tends to be. (laughs) So it even says simple things like dad loading the dishwasher are so powerful. Um, So I think, you know, just having that conversation with your spouse about how you can divide up the chores or do them at the same time. um, That helps too. Like so much having, having like, okay, for 15 minutes after dinner, we're both working. That's what Connor and I do. Yeah, just so that it doesn't feel like it's all on one person's shoulders. That helps a lot. Yeah, whenever Connor and I get to get around to doing our daily chores, we tend to just say, okay, until they're done, we're both just doing them now. And then we can goof off the rest of the night. Yeah, and, and let's remember that childcare is not a chore. No. Uh, dishes is chores. <laughs> uh, laundry, laundry is chores. Vacuuming is chores. But but bathing a child is not a chore because that's a relationship. And so, you know, even if even if the husband works full time and the wife is is home a lot of the time, if you can take that time after dinner where the dad takes the kid so that the dad is working on that relationship while the mom that's your time to rest or something or just takes that as her time to rest to read a book that's important as well you know like dad does dad does bath time and bedtime or something while mom just sits and reads that novel. Mm -hmm. Because you do need time with off. your feet up <laughs> yeah. when when you don't when you're not responsible for the baby. So I think I think that can help a lot. Um, I also think just a little thing: get outside every day. Really, just get outside when you have little ones to put them in a stroller and go for a walk. I think sometimes you just need a change of, of venue. And um, I I found when my kids were little getting some social time with other people. I went to a lot of play groups. I went to the Y um, and, and put the kids in, in the childcare at the Y while I worked out. We went to mom and baby swim hour. We went to mom (laughs) and baby gymnastics. Like I did something every morning and that just makes you feel more like a person again. Yeah. And I think the, uh, the last, the last thing that I would recommend is when it comes to a lot of the mundane stuff, a lot of it becomes very overwhelming when we haven't done any of it for a while. And then we do like seven loads of laundry in one day. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's something Connor and I have really had to learn because both of us are really, really good at not doing something for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and something that we've, 
we've tried to put in place and has been helping a lot is just having a routine of getting a little bit of everything done every day. So we don't necessarily deep clean the whole house, but every day we just do quick 10 second wipe down of the bathroom counter. Mm hmm. Right? That, those kinds of things. Or, or you do, you know, a load of laundry every other day, no matter what. Just so that you never have the eight loads building yeah. up. So it'll be interesting to see how it ends up when we do have kids as well. But even just if, if you're some without kids. Um, but I know that that's helped us a lot. Yes. Yes, you can report back in two months yeah. and say how that is going. Okay, I want to read the next question because this one's a lot more in depth. Um, a woman writes in and says, well, actually, do you want to read it? Yeah, sure. I'll Why read it. you read it? Okay, a woman writes in and says this. Right now, my husband and I are having a hard time spending time together. We've been married a few years and together for a little longer. We have two kids under two and then an older child. Our sex life before was amazing, but now our living situation has us with my in-laws. My husband works and my daughter goes to school more than an hour from the house, so we have to get up and leave the house by 6, and I often don't see my husband again until after dinner. So when my husband and I get to talk, it's usually on the phone. There are days that we want to be intimate and plan to, but by the time we're able to, we're just too tired. We know we love each other and we talk about it, but we're just struggling to get that time. So how can we get to enjoy each other's company without all the distractions? This is a perfect example of the inputs of sex being too high. Yes. <laughs> I just talked about on the main segment. So libido is there, relationship issues are good, but it's just that the ingredients to sex are too expensive. Um, I have a couple of things I want to say about this. First of all, we don't know. I have so many questions about this woman's uh, life and why they're in this situation, and we don't know all of those things. So if I were counseling her personally, I would ask, and specifically, I would ask, about all of those things so because we don't know those things I'm just going to give some general thoughts which may not apply to her specifically but they do I think they apply when you do have an untenable living situation Mm -hmm. uh, where you just can't keep doing this kind of life for the long term so um, my rule of thumb and and the way that I've always lived my life is that you can get through anything no matter how bad it is if there is an end date in sight. <laughs> but if there's no end date and you're living through something that's really, really bad, you need to make an end date. Yeah. And to me, this sounds pretty untenable. I, I completely agree. I think if your kid is having over an hour's commute to school every single day, even just how are you supposed to have any time with your kid that's meaningful? Like even taking the entire marriage out of the equation, like how are you supposed to actually like, have time to bond with your child if it takes them an hour to get back from school then they probably have an hour and a half of homework and then they have to do you know just general life things like cleaning their mm-hmm. room and like when do you actually have time as a family mm-hmm. and she and that child's going to be exhausted too that's not good for a child no. yeah so you know that's that's an issue i i will also say this and this may not have anything to do with this woman's situation because we don't know why this daughter has to go so far for school it could be they live in a very 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 rural area i don't i don't know but what i have seen too is that a lot of families will go out of their way to do something to make life really good for a child so maybe the child has friends at that school that she couldn't leave or um, maybe it's a special school about some special skill that she has if it's a special school because of, of special needs you know autism that that's an entirely different thing and that's completely valid but if it's if it's about a talent she has or if it's just about friends 
they will turn their lives inside out so that she has this great life. So in other words, they're willing that the whole family is miserable so that she has a great life as opposed to they'll have a good life and she'll have a good life. Yeah. You know, like she may not have a great life, but she has an okay alternative. But the parents aren't willing to ever let the child have anything that isn't great. Yeah, like a nine isn't okay. Everything needs to be a ten. Right, and the parents are willing to give themselves a one if it means a child can have a ten. Whereas everyone could have a seven. Right, and and it's valid. It is valid as a parent to not give your child a ten in some areas if giving your child a ten would make your family have a one. Yep. You know, you do matter and your relationship matters. So like I said, I don't know if that has to do with this specific family, but I have known families that have done that, that have turned themselves inside out for one child. Um, We talked on the blog this week. I got a lot of feedback on my post about sports and our kids' sports teams worth it and what about extracurricular activities. A lot agreed with me, a lot didn't. Um, But I will say that I think if you have a child who's really super gifted in a sport, is it worth it? For your family like even even if you let's imagine that your child could go to the olympics and could win a gold medal is that even worth it yeah. <laughs> you know and and i actually don't know that it is mm-hmm. um it because to me there are way more important things in life including the family life and the relationships so you know it's okay for your child not to have a 10 um and that that that's something that i would also say and then I just think, I don't know why they're living with the in-laws, but figure out an end date. Figure out something you can do so that we don't have to stay in this position where he's traveling so far to work and we don't have any privacy. Yeah, I agree. And to to keep anonymity, we won't say what, but he does have a job that's in quite high demand these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's it's very unclear why they're in the position that they are. And it's a well-paying job as well. And so Mm -hmm. it might be that they're just living there because they have a lot of student debt to get rid of, or they have a lot of consumer debt or something like that. And it's a really, or maybe, or maybe they're helping out the in-laws. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe their in-laws are, you know, getting older and they're trying to help out, but you know, there, there needs to be, I think, a discussion about, can we move somewhere where we're closer to school districts that work for our kids, where you can work more regular hours and where we can get someone who can help take if they are work if they're if they're helping with with the in-laws who can help with taking care of elderly parents like a housekeeper or like a personal social worker or something like that because mm-hmm. i think that even just knowing that okay we're going to be here for the next year while we pay off our debts and then once we're in a good financial situation we're going to move i think even just having that knowledge can take so much of the emotional burden off of the relationship because like you said mm-hmm. you know there's an end date Mm-hmm. And you know a lot of the a lot of the stuff she's feeling too is because she has two extremely young children. Oh my goodness! She has, yeah, she has two babies, and that's just exhausting as well. Um, I think in 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 these cases, what you need to do is you need to take a giant step back, just a giant step back. Everybody should do this every now and then, and ask what is it that we are aiming for? What is it that we want as a family? Like like if I were to like. In 50 years, when I am dying, what do I want my children to say about me? What do I want my legacy to be? I don't think we ask that question enough. Instead, we ask questions like, how much do I have to save to get a down payment for the house? Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of asking, 
where is a good place for us to live if we want to keep our lifestyle the way um, to match what it is that we want to accomplish with our family? Yeah, exactly. Because it could be that, you know, you, you decide that you're going to take a lower paying job to live a better lifestyle. And so you're willing to live in a smaller town or um, you're willing to live what my, when my mother and I lived in downtown Toronto when I was growing up um, in a condo simply because she didn't want to commute for an hour and a half a day. Mm-hmm. And so and so we lived right downtown. We did not have a very large house at all, but it was within walking distance of so much stuff that it was actually fine. You know, so so making those decisions, you know, do we actually is is having a nice big house worth it if it means I'm going to have over an hour commute each way all the time? Exactly. And we don't ask those questions enough. We, we get on this road of, well, this is what we need to be a family. We need to live in this city. We need to have a big house. We need to have our kids in the school. And we don't take a big step back and say, but what do I actually want my life to be like? Mm-hmm. And I think we'd all benefit if we did a lot more of that. Thanks for joining us for the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, where we are dedicated to making marriage into a passionate adventure. I hope you'll do that challenge and identify one or two things that are making sex too, quote unquote, expensive in your marriage and how you can make it easier. The link to the complete challenge is in the description of this podcast. And while you're online, could you do me a favor and rate this podcast five stars and leave a review? That just helps other people find it. I've been so encouraged by more five-star reviews that have come in. One says, great balanced content. I love Sheila's perspective and have been so built up by her blog and now through this podcast. I really enjoy being able to listen and be built up while going on about my life. And another says, can I just say, Sheila, I really, really appreciate your blog and podcast because not only can I relate to it, but I feel very, very comfortable passing it on to people around me because you're so relatable and practical. Unlike other blogs I read, a lot of their tips, advices, and things they do are for privileged families, completely unrelatable to the average society. I'm especially surprised how relatable you are, even with having a doctor for a husband. I think that speaks volumes to your character. And thank you. That made me feel really good. Thanks, everyone. Remember to subscribe to the podcast, and I will be right here next week for another one and another episode of To Love, Honor, and Vacuum.